Hello and welcome to episode two of Rediscovering Liberalism. We're here tonight with, again, your three hosts, Austin. And Jacob. And Josh. Uh, and all three of us kind of coming back uh, full circle after the first episode um, with a little bit better tech, a little nicer studio. We got like, we got some really nice lights uh, up on the ceiling and stuff like that. We have nice, uh, nice desk, couple couches and stuff like that. So hopefully this leaps into the future of maybe having like guests on or something like that that we can talk to um, and just kind of like barrel the conversation forward with a bit more like different ex- varying uh, areas of expertise in different fields and stuff like that. So again, uh, very nice to have kind of a, a place to talk. Um, and also, uh, let's see. So today is the 15th, September 15th. We will hopefully be doing this. I would say our goal is probably releasing an episode once every other week under normal circumstances. We are coming out with this episode probably only a week and a half after, or is it ever so many days? I'd say like seven, eight or what? What is the... A week and a half sounds about right. A week and a half. Yeah, so filmed our last one, what, Sunday? Or was it Saturday of yeah. the previous week? And it's awesome. We've done a whole bunch of stuff to kind of hopefully better the podcast, both in quality. Um, uh, it goes for quality of like sound and quality of production, but also hopefully quality of conversation. Uh, and I think that'll be reflected in the topics that we have today. Uh, as you can see from the title, the kind of the big topics that we're talking about <clears throat> is uh, we're talking about John Bolton's book. We're going to start with the, the Room Where It Happened. And we're going to kind of find our way uh, into the healthcare conversation, maybe find time to discuss uh, aspects of libertarianism that we like heading into the 2020 election and maybe where we want to see more of it, less of it. Uh, and then finally, if time allows for us, we will discuss just a little bit about um, COVID in our current surroundings and then maybe a little bit about what like what perhaps COVID looks like in the future. Or, again, that topic might be stowed away for another episode. So... Uh, again, we're going to be talking about John Bolton's book first, uh, and I think that's where we're going to kick it off. I actually, uh, I don't know if I, I sent it definitely to you guys today. I don't know if you guys saw or have any initial reactions to, um, and again, maybe we have reactions that we'll build upon after the conversation. Uh, but the Department of Justice announced uh, that they are opening an investigation into whether John Bolton's book uh, released classified information or <clears throat> gave away uh, gave away the U.S. government, whether it be spy agencies or departments, uh, whatever it is. Any any reactions initially to that? Well, you know, yeah, but hasn't Trump been trying to stop this book since the beginning? I mean, really, it's this seems like nothing new. This seems like he just doesn't like what it says, and he's going to try to get it stopped. I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's kind of my take, sure. I guess. To play on the other side, like, um, is there like key points that like they're saying? Like certain parts of his book, like this specifically, or these list of things, is what violated um, secrets. That's a good question. I I don't think that there's anything explicitly said, or <clears throat> pardon me, I don't think there's a list that was like provided. However, I do have a little bit more to add, and maybe this is where I'll start kind of just laying a bit of the background for what we're going to talk about. Uh, again, so keep that keep that perhaps question front of mind while we're going through this uh, and talking about. Um, the room where it happened is what the book is called. So yeah, I mean, let's just let's just start. So, uh, Austin, do you just want to give us a little background on who John Bolton is and like his past history and sort of what you know, what what information he brings to the table here? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Uh, so expanding on all of that, great question. So the um, <clears throat> and I think the reason that like so having read the book now, having finished the book. 
Uh, it was released in June of 2020, so it was released this year. <clears throat> um, it was put first put out uh, to the White House in December of 2019. Okay, so try to form a timeline here, right? The book is released June 2020, June about 23rd or something, so late June. <clears throat> it gets put to the White House for approval because they have a pre-publication process. This is the one that perhaps I haven't looked into as much. But there is a pre-publication process that goes into these documents, uh, whether they be manuscripts or, or actual like soon-to-be-published books, whatever, the, whatever that looks like. Um, and the publication process went through rather swimmingly. Like it didn't, sure, it maybe had like the gripes of, <clears throat> and I'll, I'll talk specifically about who, who, you know, how it was received. But again, I'd say that the background was Trump did, to answer your question, Jacob, or to answer maybe to rebut to your point, uh, Trump definitely had ample opportunity, I would say, to do something about this. Um, and I would say parallel to his, I think what a lot of people have claimed his COVID reaction is, I think it was pretty, <clears throat> we'll wait and see how it goes kind of thing. So yeah. uh, again, the author, his name is uh, John Bolton. He is a former ambassador. Uh, he served under, so he served under the Reagan administration as the assistant or an assistant attorney general. <clears throat> he also served under both of the Bushes, and then he had his fourth Republican presidency under Trump. I believe that Trump obviously was the shortest lived. So he served as national security advisor from April 2018 <clears throat> until September 2019. Uh, and actually, I just finished up the chapter where he's talking about Ukraine and how that whole thing unfolds. He leaves. That was right before the impeachment hearings, I yep. believe, right? <clears throat> so it happened a couple months before. John Bolton gets out the door right before that mess. Okay. Uh, but he hears most of the mess. He hears most of the, the grumblings of what the Democrats soon impeach Trump for. Uh, so, again, the book is called The Room Where It Happened. It's an account, basically, of observations uh, of the Trump administration. And if I can frame this, I think it's appropriate to frame it in, in the sense of... Um, you have to remember here a couple different things. The first is, this is a like lifelong, uh, lifelong Republican, lifelong conservative, lifelong. As a matter of fact, he writes in the book a couple times. Like he makes it very clear he will not be voting for Trump in this election. He makes it very clear that he wrote the book to convince other Americans away from voting for Trump in this election. Uh, and like, we can talk about this another time. It's just another thing on the pile of Trump. Like yeah. just another thing on the pile of Trump. Uh, and to that point. Trump and the White House did attempt to stop it. It was in roughly April, I think, when they started putting out... Um, no, no, I'm so sorry, I misspoke. It was June, uh, June 2020. Trump administration sought to block release of the book by Simon and Schuster, which, I don't know if you guys have heard, Simon and Schuster is also putting out Michael Cohen's book uh, about Trump. Oh, okay. Uh, I think it's that. Disloyal is what that book is called. <clears throat> it all, they also put out Mary Trump, the niece. I, I uh, did know that, yeah. They put out um, so, Too so Much and Never Enough. They're put, so they're just putting on all of the uh, the Trump hit books. They seem to be the uh, Michael Avenatti, if you will, of, of just kind of like every th single thing flows through in 2000, late 2018, Michael Avenatti. Now it's now it's Simon & Schuster. Uh, that being said, though, so again, <clears throat> when the book was released in late June, reception seemed to be negative. I'll let you guys kind of, I want you guys' opinions on this. It was viewed almost universally negatively. Uh, and I think it was because of the context in which it was released. So... Trump obviously hates it because it says nothing flattering about Trump. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think that's a rather, although it's a relatively simplistic, I think it's a real, it's like it's also a pretty accurate uh, summation. The White House and current administration, obviously all of them have their specific lines about how terrible Bolton is, and, uh, kind of protecting the, the existing administration. 
the, uh, the liberals and Democrats really disliked the book, not so much for its content, but because he didn't testify in, in the yeah. impeachment trials, which yeah. is maybe and something. So that, that's kind of an interesting point. Like, do you, I mean, has he ever really said why he didn't say these things during the impeachment trial? Because if he has all these, <laughs> these accusations, you know, and they wanted him to testify during the hearings, but he, he basically said no. Do you have any idea why? Was he just trying to save it to sell books? Because, I mean, that's kind of, I think, how, how Trump's painting him as, oh, he just wants to sell books. Like, do you, do you think that's part of it, or do you think there's, like, an <clears throat> ulterior reason? No, it, it certainly wasn't. So to answer that question, I would say <clears throat> uh, yes, to probably to both sides. I'm sure there was a financial incentive in it. If it. I mean, I think he got, like, something like a $2 million advance for the book. And, of course, imagine with me, my friends. <clears throat> You definitely want to make sure this book gets out before November, right? Yeah. And that's that's the timeline they're on for Michael Cohen's book. It was certainly the timeline, I'm sure, for Mary Trump. Whatever the case may be, uh, I do think that there is a bit of honesty to that point, that maybe there was some money in it for him. I will say, though, uh, to the opposite point, it is rather peculiar. Uh, his defense, yeah, he basically states Democrats committed what he called impeachment malpractice. And what that means is, in the impeachment process, Democrats, or the, 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 the party that's bringing or the group that's bringing impeachment. That's a pretty serious thing. If you're bringing impeachment to the table, <clears throat> you obviously need facts, you need like evidence. You're not gonna be able to, you know, throw the president out for high crimes misdemeanors with just say, you know, on hearsay. Yeah. Uh, and I, I definitely agree with John Bolton's assessment. I think the impeachment trial was a, kind of a sham. I think that the impeachment trial was rushed through and it was a political process. Uh, I think this is a good time for me to very quickly interject I think that there is a, I think there is a massive, and it would be unbelievable to me that this market is unseen in the political sphere. There is a massive market for compromise. There is a mass. It's the reason this podcast, you know, like this is, it's the same backing for this idea. This is in, it's in short supply, high demand. And I think it's the same reason that like the podcast space right now is dominating where we can have these free and open conversations. It's that nobody trusts the media. So I can't trust just recently. And this is something that we can kind of get out of the way early. Uh, Donald Trump was just recently accused within the last week and a half, I think by Bob Woodward's book uh, or by his interviewing of Trump that he called the fallen soldiers or some cemetery. He, he said that it's filled with losers. He basically was defaming these fallen so American soldiers in Europe. Yeah, well, that was, I, I don't believe that was part of Bob Woodward's. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, I think that was not, that, his, was, more I, that was a separate Related story. to COVID-19. It was. Handling. Okay. Um, Please forgive that me. That was, I can't believe what, uh, or I can't recall what, uh, article or what um, publisher put it out, but there was a certain uh, organization that um, quoted anonymous sources that um, he made those comments. Okay. I, so, yeah, so Bob, Bob <clears throat> had recordings, and you can listen to some of them on CNN, but he, he had audio recordings of everything that, that he talked to with Trump. So those ones are like verifiable, and like okay. anyone yeah. can go and listen to them. But well, that then, was different than, than this. If I may course correct, then, instead of Bob Woodward, it was whatever and again i'd say that this speaks exactly to what i'm talking about with distrust of the media uh another one of these anonymous sources claiming that trump said this said xyz and it turns out not to be true um well but does anyone really know i mean because trump's gonna deny it john bolton said so forgive me my main point here was john bolton who actually wrote specifics about this event in the book there are quotes from this event in the book and he does not say a word john bolton's book if anything was quote heavy like he i don't know i think there was a lot of people kind of doubting 
they were kind of like, hmm, how does John Bolton remember all this if he didn't take notes and all that stuff? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Whatever the case may be. Or, I'm so sorry, the, my point is, John Bolton refuted these claims. He writes a specific account of this story in the book. At what point do you say, hey, I'm not voting for this president, I don't like this president, but I'm going to lie for him on this one weird, no, I did hear him say that, but I'm not going to, I'm going to say no. That doesn't make any sense. He has no reason to lie. And the book's been published for months now. So you're saying you take that actually to build his credibility. You, that means John you Bolton's. trust John Bolton more. Yeah, I, I agree am, with that. And it looks like the article is actually put up by the Atlantic. You agree with my, you agree with the? Yeah, I, yeah. John Bolton doesn't have any reason. There, there's no impetus. There's, it, yeah. To say that Trump didn't make those comments. Exactly. And so in, in, in that stead, uh, I'll, I'll just finish by saying, please tell me what you guys think. Liberals, Democrats didn't like the book again because of that impeachment malpractice we were talking about. Uh, the Democrats, basically, Bolton's argument was, if you guys would have slowed <clears> the train <throat> down a little bit, you would have actually had more ammunition. Ukraine was just the beginning. That was kind of his argument. There's a quote in the book about, and it's one of the most uh, unflattering ones to Trump. It talks about how and he, he was actually, John Bolton was unable to quote this because of the pre-publication process in the White House. They had to remove this. President Trump like is on record saying, or again, is on these calls saying, these dot, not record, but is on a, a phone call with President Xi Jinping of China saying, buy more soybeans. Like he's specifically laying out, it basically sounds like he's talking to his agriculture, like his campaign strategist. And he's talking to a foreign, like you might call him an adversary in today's world. And that's where, yeah, I do. I give Bolton a bit more coin when it comes to like, who am I going to trust when it comes to like the honesty currency? Trump is the lowest of the low when it comes to that. And, and I will say that with, to much chagrin, I, I do not think Trump is an honest president. Uh, and I think that that's pretty obvious. I think that this book uh, will have ample opportunity maybe to dig into a couple of the points. Uh, I think that they like tell the story very well. The final thing I'll say is there were actually some foreign powers that came out, like foreign countries and representatives that came out against this book's release. There mm. was uh, South Korea came out and said that <coughs> basically diplomacy would be wounded between America and South Korea if they unilaterally released like diplomacy, like conversations between the two, largely because John Bolton spends a great part of, a, a great part of his uh chapter on the Hanoi summit, trash talking South Korea's domestic policy towards like reunification. And yeah. right now they're in a period, South Korea is in a period, uh, for those of you who don't know, where the leader is a member of the party that espouses what's called the sunshine policy. And it basically says that instead of hard nosed diplomacy or hard nosed like sanctions, whatever that the opposing route, and I'm certainly not saying pro or pro or con to it. The opposing route is rather befriend, befriend the North and live in hopefully some cooperative or cooperatively built piece so anyways long and the short of it is and please tell me what you guys think so far about that background and everything again he has he has his bona fides when it comes to the republican party it comes to like how many republicans listening out there would not look me dead in the face and tell me reagan is your favorite president one of your favorite presidents i know i was there at one point and i still might argue reagan was a pretty good president again those things like bolton was in the department of justice for them for the bushes and so on and so forth so yeah, so he's not he's not just some left wing hack who's out to smear yep. Trump. I mean, yeah, that that much you know we definitely have to take that into account. You have so many people coming out of this administration, and it's like a Rorschach test. It's basically, do you like Trump or do you not? And based on that question, or were you treated right? Amarosa Manigault or whatever that gal's name was, she was the uh, the lady who was a part of the Trump campaign. She was in that PBS uh, documentary saying like, every person's gonna have to bow to President Trump. Uh, before she gets, and now she was, she left the White House scorned by Trump. 
it's basically a Rorschach test. Bolton is not. Bolton came in as a, everybody knows he's a hawk. Every single person, he is the one that has remained tried and true through these years. You want to talk about Bernie Sanders. John Bolton's maybe just his kind of like Republican twin, if you will. He's been sure. steadfast. Mm-hmm. So I'll close, I'll close that question with just basically, I think, uh, I think John Bolton is the one person to come out of that administration that I knew of represented in previous administrations. And being able to kind of put your compass on, okay, he said this back then. This is what he's writing about what Trump does now. And again, we'll dig into it a little more. I just, it doesn't add up to me. And I think I distrust Trump more as a result of reading this book. Okay, sure. Not to say anything about trust of Bolton or anything. Yeah. So does John Bolton, does he uh, like discuss or reference any of these other leaders? I know you discussed them and there have been a lot of kind of a revolving door of, of people in his administration. Does John Bolton, you know, quote or discuss any of these other people who, who have had similar issues with Trump or is this just mainly from his perspective? No, so he, he definitely does. Uh, I would say that he, he quotes John Kelly a lot. He quotes Mike Pompeo and John a lot. Kelly, was he the chief of staff yes. at one point? Forgive me. So he was he was Donald Trump's... And this is another sad part about the administration. I can't even guess if he was their second or third. And like, chief of staff-wise, he's had quite a few. It was, Mick Mulvaney was one. Mark Meadows is the current one. Rice Priebus? Wasn't Mike Flynn? No, he was a national security advisor. Yeah. So case in point, again, if if... The revolving doors at the Waldorf would be put to shame, like by, by this administration. I'm serious. Like it's just it's over and over and over. So many. Exactly, Kelly Pompeo. They're quoted directly in the book so many times. I would say some of the family members are quoted. Bolton has an inherent distrust, uh, and I hope I'm representing him correctly. He has an inherent distrust of like Kushner. This whole family nepotism politics. Yeah. This is what's so great about the book too. It expresses kind of all those things you kind of wanted to say when voting for Trump, or I wanted to say when voting for Trump, like, oh, he's going to make like Ivanka that, and oh, he's going to make Jared that, and oh, what are yeah. what are Donald Trump Jr. doing, and what's the other one's name? Donald Trump Jr. and Eric. Eric. Eric Trump. So all those things, like, oh, what's this? What yeah, is this? It's, it's, the it's definitely very unheard of to see so much, like, these None of his family has political experience in there. Not just, a single one, himself uh, included. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. Like it's understandable when you see uh, families like the Clintons and the, the the Bushes, but to see a whole entire family just jump into politics and uh, seeing Trump um, have his whole family just his like tight knit group uh, come in and take very large and important roles mm-hmm. that none of them have had prior experience for. It is rather insane, and this is one thing I'll definitely will definitely need to discuss before uh, the election on the podcast here. Uh, the Middle East. I wonder what's happening over there. Like we've been hearing Bahrain, and we heard a UAE. They're making deals with Israel and stuff. This is big stuff. Like, and, and again, like so, Jerry Kushner. He was like put on the Middle East project or whatever. It's like, it's this weird era of just. It's all confusing. I don't. The one thing that, and again, I'm just looking for those guiding lights. I think both of you have kind of known and. And again, I think people listening to this podcast will find it no stranger after a couple more episodes. I'm kind of trying to search out, you know, what I, what news sources I like and, you know, where I'm, where I'm kind of at in the current political setting uh, or in the political scene, I should say, rather. Uh, And a a lack of trust, a lack of honesty has been pervasive. And back in the day, like, maybe I didn't like what Obama was saying, perhaps, but, but I believed what he was saying was something that was on the, uh, like, it wasn't the next day going to be found out to be blatantly and patently false yeah and that oh what love lost for the obama years Hmm. um so let me ask you this austin um so out of everything that you read what do you think 
was the most, like the most, I guess, like damning thing that Trump did that really kind of like set off some red flags in your mind is like, okay, this is, you know, it, assuming that, that this is true, this is not okay. What, do you have any specific or, or maybe a couple of stories to, to share with us? Yeah. Uh, if I had to place a percentage on it, I would certainly say that like reading the book, researching the occasions and the events related to it, like President Trump, I would probably assign the book 65%, roughly 70% of my of reason for not voting for him. It was a, it was a hefty, hefty, uh, I needed to hear it from somebody that, like I said, I, I need, maybe I don't inherently trust, but at least they don't have 1700 strikes against them. Right. So I would say, um, the two big ones, they actually weren't like, I'll be honest. I, I was, there's a couple, there's two things I'll talk about from the book. Two, two more recent things, kind of, unfortunately, is his handling of COVID-19 and then also, like, the Russian bounty thing. Like, uh, like Russian bounties being paid to the Taliban to kill U.S. troops. And then we don't hear anything about that, like, seriously. And I used to think there was some, and maybe this is my naivete showing, I used to think there was some, like, grandmaster plan with Russia. Now I think he's truly just perhaps sold down the river. Like, I think there's maybe something there. I think there's at least... He has done a pretty good job with the economy. He has done a very good job with the economy, but COVID-19 and then the dishonesty or the, um, excuse me, the Russian bounty stuff. Those are the two things that have done it for me after the book. And uh, before in the book, bureaucratic incompetence, like just layers and layers and layers. So I'll give you a prime example. Most incoming administrations do some form of, let's call it like a civil service sweep. They basically do a, a cleansing, if you will, of the departments. Uh, of course, there are certain levels that you can't fire, of course, and you shouldn't be able to. They're basically just like working people. They're, they don't really have a whole lot of inherent push on policy, whatever the case may be at, the, at those departments. He didn't like clear out hardly any of them. He named, so like there's like a whole bunch of Obama era people working in the Trump administration to like, even on two administrations, best days is probably not the best thing to be happening. Or two different administrations, best transition of power. Certainly not in the toxic era of Obama Trump, but he basically left a whole bunch of Obama people on his team and then media leak after media leak after media leak. It basically created in Trump. So Bolton's claim seems to be that in Trump, it was created basically like this behind every corner is somebody out to get me in this, in this even in the White House. It's a lot of paranoia. Exactly. Like it's it's and that's kind of what drove him to be. Uh, I don't trust people. I want people fired if they talk bad to me. And again, I don't think Bolton's looking to provide an excuse for arrogance necessarily, just so much as he is to like explain the present version of it, where it's like, you have so, and it's true. They had a lot of leaks. They had a ton of leaks. They, every single thing the media has known, it's been a day before Trump announces it. Or, you know what I mean? Like there've been multiple instances of that. Uh, and that is like, it's a bit disconcerting. Like, and I would say that that's a failure of administration. Not a failure of like, he likes to go on about witch hunts and all that stuff. I have nothing to say about the Obama, like FISA court stuff. Any of that's Obama gate that he's talking about. I have nothing to say about that right now. It is more so just like in the book, uh, again, President elect, uh, President elect Trump and his team definitely made up their cabinet. They did not conduct an adequate, again, we call it as they called it, I should not say I call it, civil servant sweep of the Obama era folks. So again, this relies on most of, um, so most of the first two and a half years of his presidency, it basically resulted in it being plagued with constant media leaks, which basically then, like you said, Josh, caused a basic downward spiral of paranoia. There were very few people he trusted, 
and maybe that right there is a simple explanation psychologically or not about why family was the one that he surrounded himself with like sure. at that point at least you have something yeah you have some axiom to say no they have to be loyal to and that's maybe where you're seeing this be so like loyalty or die loyalty sure. or get out loyalty or your career is done all that stuff and it's just it makes me not want to vote for him again sure and I suppose part of his uh, reason for not conducting a civil servant sweep um, might stem from his inexperience in the political field and those around him just having an inexperience in that field. So they, they didn't know who to look for and who would say, oh, so-and-so in this department um, is more for Obama-era policies. We should probably replace him or her. Um, I suppose he just didn't have the experience and didn't have a team around him to help him uh, comb through those people. Exactly. And John Bolton would call that, he calls it in his book, quote, the axis of adults is what he calls that. He says, Trump's failure the last... So again, and I think I told you this, Jacob, on the phone a couple uh, weeks ago. I still agree with a lot of what Trump did in, in year number one, year number two, and year number... Let's say year number three for the first couple of months. I'll be conservative. I have, I have like, the tax cut I didn't like. There are certainly things that I could comb through and I, I do not like. But there are certainly things that I do. I, the, and again, I'd be more than happy to kind of like evolve my view on any of these. When it comes to moving the embassy in Jerusalem, I think that, like, while I do not think, and I'm not so jaded or high schoolish, perhaps we'll call it, to, to, to think that uh, America can unilaterally act on the world stage, it just doesn't happen. It cannot happen. Like, it's, it's impossible to operate in a world where it's America versus everybody. Um, of course, watching those YouTube videos about how our militaries would stack up against each other are super fun to watch, but they're not supposed to be educational for the real world. It's supposed to be like a, we take this as a group. The, the Western, like NATO. His attacks on NATO are goofy at best. All of those things, again, uh, the last thing I'll say, if I can point briefly back to the book, uh, again, he had, and again, yeah, Bolton's early theory certainly is uh, what crafted such a disjointed on-the-fly administration uh it's represented simply by COVID. Like, you need look no further than even after the Bolton administration. Like, Trump was praising China. Trump was praising China for months. Like, at least for two of them. And even while he was, like, locking them down or saying you can't travel from China, all that did is it, the virus came from Europe. You know what I mean? Yep. And that's where it's, it's that short-sightedness, I think, that, Josh, you hit it right on the head. Um, you, like, bureaucracy is a beast. There is another interesting thing that I learned through this book, honestly. Uh each department seems to kind of have its own way of doing things and like policy hear me out gentlemen policy can be halted completely by unelected like state or like departments like they can just be like and then a, a couple times in the book bolton has to talk about like scolding different departments about how like he's like no unfortunately the department of the treasury doesn't get to have their own foreign policy they have to be under, <laughs> you know they have to be under the current administration yes <laughs> The only thing that gets to be outside of that realm is like the bed, I guess, is kind of outside of all that. Uh, so again, I'll leave my kind of thoughts resting at your guys' feet. I want to hear what you guys thought or even even the news of what it said. The last thing I'll leave is um, I like and I, I hope I'm speaking to the Trump supporters in a, in a reconciliatory and like I, I again, I think there's a huge appetite, a huge market for compromise reaching across the aisle. I think that if Democrats could just kind of screw their heads on straight and, and look to, like, gain the voters that Trump has, like, eschewed, like, tried really hard to rather than 
again, I think right now, uh, the Democratic Party, we can talk about that later. R right now, where I see it is, this is the only president where half the stuff John Bolton writes is believable. You can remove President Trump, the name Trump, from all of this, and I wouldn't believe the stories you're telling me. I wouldn't believe, like, Trump didn't know that the United Kingdom was a nuclear power. They thought Finland, he thought Finland was part of Russia. I'm listing off documented mm. things from this book. He, like, there are substantive, like, they teach you this in senior year. I know because I was just recently there. I was there a lot closer than Trump was to senior year. That being said, I, again, I'll leave this with it. I am, I'm sick and tired of taking the road uh, of, well, I don't believe the media, so I'll believe everything the other side tells me. It's just where it's a regrettable state of affairs that we're that I find myself in right now, where it's I don't believe anybody. And Bolton provided me a small glimmer of light in that sense, and maybe that's where I've I've been misguided a bit. Maybe it's not true, but right now, um, the the foreign policy war hawk of the Republican Party's got me in this in the trust camp, and I think that's the only one right now that I can think of. And that goes for a lot of very prominent senators that ran for president of the Republican Party. So. I think that's where I got any any thoughts from you guys. I've been doing all the talking. Any thoughts? Did you guys hear about any of this? Have you heard anything? Uh, again, the Department of Justice did open an investigation into was classified material was leaked. I will say there was a lot of really interesting stuff. Like you got to hear stuff that it did sound like it might be off limits. So I was a bit surprised to hear like, oh, there you could like all the travel plans were very cool to learn about. Like how how much they traveled, like flying across around the globe several times in a week. It's just nuts. Nuts mm -hmm. to think about. Fun insights there as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't read the book at all. Um, I've read yeah, a few yeah. articles, you know, before, kind of back when it was originally coming out and got, kind of got a little, you know, little summaries of it, I guess, from, you know, news articles. So I don't have a whole lot of uh, a lot of information to add, but we definitely appreciate your, your insight on this, Austin. Yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah, it was a fun time. It was a good read, for sure. It was, uh, I, I got sick of it at the end. It was like, just foreign policy, foreign policy, foreign policy. And that's Bolton's area of expertise. So so let me ask you this uh, as a, maybe kind of a wrap-up question. Did John Bolton, in his book, did he have anything positive to say about Trump? Did he did he like any aspects, or was it pretty much negative? Uh, good question. One of the biggest things was cost-sharing. Trump's position on cost-sharing when it comes to NATO, getting everybody up to that 2% spending um, mark. Again, if for those who don't know, in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization... That's basically the coalition or the group of Western powers. So UK, France, Germany, America, Canada, so on and so forth. Um, the, the biggest thing that I would say Trump, and I, I still agree in some small part, I think it has to be like a, a, a bilateral talk to get people up to the amounts. But I also think it's just kind of goofy. I, I, John Bolton 100% agreed with Trump saying, Europe needs to pay more for its defense. Japan needs to pay, South Korea needs to pay more. He just completely disagreed with the flip-floppy manner in which, like, Trump would be like, it seemed like at any given moment, if Trump saw an opportunity to get something to his political advantage, he would give away the whole thing. He'd give away the ship. He was willing to, at one point, basically quit the entire joint military exercises as a whole on the Korean Peninsula just to get a concession from Kim Jong-un. And that's just, uh, John Bolton would call it, and I might find myself agreeing more often than not, irresponsible so with that if there's nothing else to add on that one um i think we're going to kind of transition move a little bit over into the healthcare space um i don't know if so much as the john bolton conversation if this one's kind of being elicited or driven by 
uh, current events as much as it is more just perhaps a conversation about the whole overarching policy area, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and again, I think this one's going to be kind of more the free, <clears throat> freewheeling uh, conversation. Um, does anybody want to start? Anybody got anything to say right off the bat? I will say I spent a good chunk of the, my time looking at... Uh, I spent a good chunk of my time recently, this, the research I was doing and stuff like that, looking at is healthcare a human right? Kind of looking at what the state's responsibility... Just, again, defining the line rather than finding where we should fall on it. Uh, and again, I thought that was a super interesting conversation. Uh, we can talk about what I found later. Anybody else have any interesting things you guys were looking at? Not too much? Well, I kind of looked into um, comparing different methods of healthcare where um, you look at the United States system versus um, Canada and countries in Europe, just kind of comparing how the systems work and kind of looking to uh, different uh, functional pieces of each of the different systems. Well, I have, I certainly feel like I've talked enough. Why don't you, do you want to like espouse, did you find anything interesting? Anything that stood out from those countries? I think you were talking about uh, a video Mr. Steven Crowder had put out earlier. Do you want to share any of that? those insights sure. at all? Or uh, the video's a bit old now. Um, sure. It was posted back in 2009, but it, it kind of um, uh, the purpose of the video was to kind of place an inside look at uh, the healthcare system in Canada um, and just kind of how that works for an average person and um, <clears throat> what uh, you'd expect for wait times and um, how different services work. Um, they started by um, attempting to um, go into a clinic for um, what they were saying was potentially a broken wrist. Um, they, when they attempted to go to a clinic, they found that um, all the government clinics um, aren't open, at least in this province. They aren't open on the weekends. Um, so they went to the hospital and said, um, which um, they took like a whole tab uh, with a number on it, uh, had to wait for about an hour and a half to see a nurse um, to be told that um, they could be waiting anywhere from two to ten hours in total for since it was a non-priority ER visit um, for someone to look at their wrist and see if it was broken or not. Um, and they ran into similar problems where uh, someone was trying to get a blood test for cholesterol um, and they went to the clinic for that uh, and were told by the uh, the nurse there that um, they weren't able to get the blood test without a doctor's order, which uh, you have to have a primary physician for. Um, and at least at that time, the current wait for a uh, primary physician to, get, to be assigned one um, was anywhere from two to three years uh, if you weren't in, in like, uh, necessary, like, urgent need for a, a primary physician. So that's kind of uh, one of the things I was kind of looking at, just kind of like the how the wait times and different things um, uh, worked. Uh, another interesting part of the video was there were um, a few of the people that they ran into at the different clinics and sites um, mentioned if they were trying to get uh, care sooner, they could um, try to go to a private clinic where they would have to pay out of pocket for services. Um, it was just kind of interesting to see that um, they there's a private market in Canada that um, exists um, for the uh, the need of uh, speed, in a sense. Mm. Yeah, any thoughts from you? I, I, or why don't we begin rather by, and again, Josh, I appreciate that. I think that actually lays a good foundation for, what are your thoughts? 
what are your um you it, like and again in the area where this can be conversational more so than structured uh it is it's going to be you guys are going to start hearing conversation uh, it's going to be this one again we do have a little bit of like um i would say like research topics stuff that we have that we kind of want to hit but again for you listeners out there this is going to be far more uh structured a little bit more loosely so again i'll maybe i'll turn the floor over to you do you want to kind of start with what where do you sit with healthcare? Yeah, well, so I, I guess I, I really kind of changed my position. I think quite a bit in the last few years. Kind of the more research and reading I've done, um, I've I've taken more of a, a liberal approach to healthcare. I would I would say that I support like a Medicare for all type single payer system, um, and I I do have some he's, he's some reasons out. some he's reasons bringing it out. why. Yeah, I, I I looked up a few statistics. Um, so, I mean, just, I mean, obviously I, I think most people would agree. Most people know that healthcare spending in, in the U S is very high. It's, it's risen. It's, you know, it's kind of out of control. Do you have any numbers on that? I you do. Know. So if you look just to kind of get a reference, if we look at say healthcare spending as a percentage of GDP, and these numbers are as of 2017 in the United States, 17% of our GDP gross domestic product is devoted to healthcare. We spend on healthcare. In say Canada or even the, the United Kingdom, though they're sitting at about ten percent. Um, so you know it, it's quite a bit more. And if you look at say converting that into an average of, of like dollars, um, if you're if you're converting it to United States dollars, it would be about ten thousand two hundred ish um, that the USA would would be spending per year per person. In Canada, that would only be about four thousand eight hundred, and in the United Kingdom, it'd be about four thousand two hundred. So, you know, I mean, in a lot of cases, we're spending almost double in total healthcare spending than a lot of other developed countries. And really, when you look at it, the United States is pretty much the only like first world country that doesn't have like a universal coverage for healthcare, and yet also we spend on average way more so it seems like something's not quite adding up there because you think if if we spend so much you know you, you'd expect it to be better and, and yeah obviously as, as josh mentioned maybe the wait times are a little bit slower um i'm sure they are in, in some things I'm, I'm sure that's the case yeah so, but uh, so kind of but at the same time i mean to pay double i don't i don't know what the what the trade-off is for me i would say might not be worth it, especially if you look at some, you know, big picture statistics like life expectancy or like infant mortality rate. If you look at those kind of statistics, obviously those are, you know, big picture statistics, not individual case by case, you know, like you have a broken wrist or whatever, but just total life expectancy, you know, the U.S. lags behind a lot of these other countries too. So I don't know, to, to me, it's like the, the numbers would kind of suggest that we're, we're the outlier seem like we're doing something different than everyone else and it doesn't really seem to be working um that's that's kind of my i guess kind of where i've come to on it oh sure and that's to add to your point about wait times um one thing they didn't really mention that i was able to do research on for for true emergency uh, services where you need surgery or you need something instantly there's definitely priority for that and you can you're not waiting for like open heart surgery or something yeah, like that yeah. um and another um just kind of a thought on just the, the overall cost um it'd be interesting to see 
um, where those numbers lie when it comes to either like medical services or if those numbers um, are more affected by uh, prescription costs for different drugs. That would be a good question. I do not, I do not have those numbers in front of me, but yeah, I, I think, well, it is interesting. The U.S. definitely spends a lot on prescriptions, and, and I know recently I think there was, there was talk, and maybe they passed it. I, I mean, one of you guys can chime in if you remember, but the U.S. was considering importing drugs from Canada, even though they were originally developed and manufactured in the United States. So essentially the United States pharmaceutical companies would sell them to Canada, but it was actually, it would be cheaper to import them from Canada again because Canada negotiated the prices lower and they set caps on it. So I, I don't know if this actually passed or if there's this talk of doing it, but so it's just sort of ironic that these U.S. pharmaceutical companies are giving, they're selling their products for less to foreign countries Yeah. just because we don't have a coherence you know, it's so Regulatory system over how yeah, the price of drugs. It's very fragmented our insurance industry, so there's no one person, you know, saying no. That's that's too, too much. Too expensive. Yeah. yeah. I uh, I like. It is to my great dismay that, like, the stats are what they are. That we're spending so much money. Um. I. I would very much be curious to know how much of it is prescription costs, how much of it is drug costs. Like, that is the most, that is the easiest thing subjected to capitalistic greed. Like, and and make no mistake, like, it is not a bad thing. It's rather capitalistic to admit greed exists. Capitalism is the engine by which we retool greed to make, it's truly, it's, it's making, the reason it works so well is because it's, it's tooled off of a human vice. We could vice all day. You want to vice all day? Let's do it. And that's where I think it comes from. With this unbridled, like, I, I do, I, I, and let me be very careful with what I say here. I, I think that it is incredibly immoral that insurance companies charge what they do. I think it is incredibly, let me be even a bit more surgical. I think it's incredibly immoral what Pfizer charges, what these drug companies charge, what like, and, and, and and, and the money these CEOs make. I heard something from Mr. Bernie Sanders that I might actually get behind in regards to this. Instead of having like patents on medicine, what he was arguing was you get an upfront cost. You get an upfront to make the vaccine for this, we will pay you X number it's of like dollars. A, it's like a grant, right? It's like a prize. Almost, almost. like a contract. Uh, that that's the way like, I yes, heard it. Yes. So it's like a prize. If you can yes. develop, say, we want a drug to treat diabetes. And if you can meet the criteria, you get a billion dollars just right away. And but then it becomes generic. So anyone after, can After a one-year period, after a five-year period, whatever that looks like, after a government-mandated period. And you know what? This is the thing. If I may say, oh, is that our... Yeah, that's our dear friend John Kapoor, I think, right? Who is that? Yep. Yeah. So uh, Josh pulled up on the, on the screen here. We have pharmaceutical executive John Kapoor sentenced to 66 months uh, in prison. This gentleman was the CEO of INSYS. Uh, just like Martin Shkreli, uh, not Insys necessarily. Martin Shkreli, I think, was a different company with uh, different super generic drug. All you have to do, all you have to do, hey, all three of us and anybody listening right now, I got a big business plan for you, okay? Here's what you do. I want you to gather all of your life savings and I want you to, I want you to basically make yourself look incredibly and immaculately attractive to some pharmaceutical company out there, okay? Either do that or go to, go to college for pharmacy. Because seriously, all you have to do is find a generic drug that costs $3 a pill right now, add a zero. That's not that much. And then guess what happens? Just like student loans, 
just like student loans, the, the, the everybody else in the market sees, oh, we now have this third player here. It's not just me and the buyer. Now there's this third player that's willing to almost supplement the, what the buyer can give me or what, you know what I mean? What the, what I'm going to get from this transaction. Ergo de facto, I snuck up the price $27, but you can pay that. Your co-pays hardly. And now you see where the snowball goes. Go ahead and say, what, what are you looking at? Oh, I'm just looking up um, some infamous cases. Uh, so um, I believe Austin mentioned uh, Martin Scarelli, um, who's, uh, I believe is in prison now. Um, yeah. Something unrelated he asked to for a release for COVID he, he got to create the COVID vaccine. That's what yep. he said. <laughs> yep. Uh, but something unrelated to his prison sentence, uh, he um, hiked the price of a life-saving HIV drug by more than 5,000%. What was it called? It was called uh, Daraprim. 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 And, and, and that's just it. I, I think that there are so many big, and, and again, I think this is where you and I are going to, we're going to, and I'm excited to see the conversation. I'm excited to get into it. This is where I think that I've now discovered so many other issues besides like my willingness for Medicare for all has not decreased or has not begun to wane a bit simply for any like merit or lack thereof that Medicare for all has. It's now seeing what we can maybe perhaps do. And by the way, I'll also say really quickly, and then maybe I'll hand it over to Jacob, Josh, whoever wants to talk next. I will say uh, in, in summation of my thought of this thought right here, like I think that the fact that we're able to pull up so many of these instances, I think Josh had it in under 10 seconds, uh, something up on the screen that told me that uh, an EpiPen in the United Kingdom costs 88% more in the U.S. or, or what, whatever. Yeah, 88%. by the numbers, uh, you can see, um, so in the U.S., two, uh, two pack of EpiPens costs uh, $608. Um, which is up more than 500% in the last decade uh, versus in the UK, it only costs $69. And that's um, very close to the cost that it uh, costs to produce in the UK. So they're barely uh, having any up marks in the UK. Can I ask, uh, Jacob, do you have anything economic to say about price controlling pharmaceuticals? Price controlling, not all of them. Please bear in mind, I'm, I'm talking very specifically. And this is also another thing uh, before I hand this off to you. I think that we get lost in absolutes in this argument a lot where it's like either fully free market or fully Medicare for all or fully. And this is going to be one of the solutions I might bring to the table tonight as kind of a state, a state by state solution. Talk a little bit more about how that's completely impossible right now. Uh, again, what, 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 when we, when we place price control on things, price ceilings, at least for rent and stuff like that, it has adverse economic effects. What, what would a, uh, that you can imagine, Placing, let's say, an EpiPen. How much was it in the UK, roughly? Did it uh, tell you? $69 for a two-pack. So let's say instead of $600, the government goes and they mandate it can be no more than $100. So not only, we're not doing like, oh, what is it in the UK? We're just doing like There's, a... That's still a significant upmark. Significant. How many people no longer have to worry about their insurance premiums now? They can just go buy that stuff every month. Or, again, I don't mean to say, and I'll also, I'm not sick. I don't like, I have a hospital coming my way for a little incident in Denver, Colorado. Excited to see those numbers. But I'm not sick, and I don't have to put up with this, those life-saving medicines. So, again, tell me, what are your thoughts from the economic point of view? Yeah, well, you know, I guess the, the thing that jumps out to me is, you know, obviously the U.S. is based on a, a very capitalistic system in a sense. But if you look at the way patent law works, it's sort of, I mean, patents are an important part of capitalism. But at the same time, the effect of a patent is a monopoly, right? It's, it's a temporary monopoly. Yes, it's like so a government-sanctioned monopoly. And, you know... Capitalism does not work well with monopolies in the long run. I mean, 
So that, I, I think, it, like, if we want to talk about how the market is distorted by price controls, that, that would, but also I think the market is already distorted because of patents. And again, you want that to some extent because, yeah, they have research and development costs that they need to recoup. And, and obviously, you know, you, you want these companies to be able to, to do research. Wait, are you arguing, I'm so sorry for interrupting, are you arguing then, just to make sure I've got you pegged correctly, are you arguing that drug price is downstream from patent control or patent reform? So you're saying well, we would we would reform patents first, and then later, like as a as a cause effect module, we would later see then reduction in price because they just don't have the mechanisms then to keep those prices to themselves. That's what I would I would think that would generally follow. Yeah, because see, I mean, and, and a lot of these drugs, if you look at, uh, I mean, they they make these these drugs and they do a lot of they do a lot of research and a lot of money goes into making them. And if they get really successful ones, I don't exactly know the the timeline that they have. Um, I think it probably depends. Do you know is it how many years? I, I don't even. I guess I didn't even check that. But I believe it's at least ten, but I could be longer. Yeah, and but what I've heard some companies do then is they'll make a very small change to the formula of like an inactive ingredient. Yeah, make a newer version of it so they can repatent exactly. a similar drug. So they'll repatent so they can... the same drug. So essentially, this drug that was maybe developed way after the patent should have expired. If they make a small little tweak, they can repatent it with this small adjustment and still own the patent on it. And, and still get those profits. Exactly, because then if you have a patent, there's no competition. It's essentially a monopoly. So honestly, yeah, I think if you just reform patent law and um, like kind of what we were discussing earlier, I think that it, it'd be a very good idea to explore is just saying, hey, if you make this drug, we'll give you a prize up front, maybe instead of a patent, because yeah, we understand like science isn't cheap. It costs money to do research. Like mm -hmm. I get it. They have to pay their, their team to research stuff. Could one... Uh, on that point, could you say that uh, the U.S. bears like a, a massive burden of shouldering the cost of these uh, drugs that uh, you could almost say – I don't know if I want to go as far as to say that the U.K. and the other developed nations just are kind of getting a free ride and, and paying for these pharmaceutical research and, and where the, they're – like I know with the U.K., they uh, negotiate prices like with these pharmaceuticals. That's why they're able to get EpiPens like – barely above cost yeah i mean yeah i i would agree with that to some extent i think there is a lot of that hmm. where where the u.s us as as consumers of healthcare in the united states i think we do probably subsidize the cost yeah. in research and development costs sure for, for a lot of these other countries i mean i don't have specific numbers in front of me on that but yeah i, I agree with with your sentiment i think that that's a, that's that, an interesting point it's kind of uh, and you could almost imagine that, uh, say, if the U.S. did um, adopt more of a um, universal healthcare approach, that you could almost see, um, the, you, of course, things would be cheaper in the short run for the U.S., but I could almost see, um, in a sense, a, a leveling of these drug costs like, across international uh, scenes. Yeah, it would be, be really interesting to see if the U.S. did go with that. I'd be curious to see like if that would change... You know the the landscape where maybe other countries would develop drugs more to kind yeah. of pick up the slack, or if there would be fewer drugs. I mean, yeah, that'd be mm -hmm. it'd be interesting to, to see the effects of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it. I guess I I don't know exactly how much R and D a lot of these like foreign like European drug companies sure. do. I I feel like you hear a lot about American companies coming up with them. Yeah. Um, but there, I mean, there really shouldn't be any reason why. You know, Europeans couldn't develop drugs. Yeah, and it's, I think they I think definitely right. do. But if, you... if the free ride option is there, I mean, why wouldn't you take it? Exactly. I mean, so 
I think there's something to be said for that. And also, I do think that, you know, even, even if you did have a universal system in America, I don't think that's like the end of, of pharmaceutical companies, you know, I mean, because no. we're not going to, you There'll know, I don't think anyone's somewhere. advocating for setting the price so low that they can't afford to do what they need to do. You know, no, there just has like, to be some sort of balance. There just needs to be a balance where, yes, <clears throat> it costs money to research drugs and we're willing to pay for that, but we're not willing to give you crazy monopoly style rents just because you have a patent for years and years on something that you did a long yeah, time ago. I believe ago. Uh, you looked that up, but it's 20 years for a patent. 20 years for pharmaceuticals? Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, and another th- I'm the one thing I just hope is that that where that balance is uh, strike is, is uh, people who need insulin or people who need epipens uh, don't have to worry about like not having enough money for rent uh, because of these drugs. That, that's that's the kind of the, should be the goal. You know what's really it's kind of sad actually. I think it's insulin that you mentioned it. So mm-hmm. there's a really interesting backstory on that. So the the original guy who discovered or, or developed insulin. Mm-hmm he realized how, how useful it could be and how important it was for society. Yeah. So he, and, and you can fact check me, uh, Josh, right now, but he, I believe he sold it or basically he like gave it away. I think he sold it for like a dollar because he wanted it to be available for everyone. So he, he you know, he just saw that it was such a, a, a useful tool. He didn't want it to be, you know, he didn't want it to be monetized to, to make these crazy, you know, profits for these companies. He wanted it to be accessible for everyone. So he basically essentially gave it away, the patent originally, um, but like a company bought it up and then, you know, here we are and it's still crazy expensive yeah. the company has been making profits off it, even though that's not at all what the original developer wanted. So yeah, um, uh, mentioning what you're talking about, the original price of insulin, um, when they originally came out with um, the um, current uh, type of drug of insulin uh, back in 96 um, the original supply was about uh, $21 for a month um, and then uh, in 2001 uh, it jumped to 35 and looking at more modern times in 2019 uh, it's all up all the way to 275 so that's a um, 1200% increase which is just insane and then um, another point is I know that um, there's been many many different types of insulin that have been created um so when you're looking at like say this more original insulin versus some of the the, the other shoots the the prices vary very widely based on what version you're getting and each version have their own levels of effectiveness and how much you have to purchase of course so yeah i i will say um another thing kind of regarding the economics of healthcare and kind of shifting away from prescription drugs specifically but just more health insurance broadly, I think one of the things that, that I see a major problem in is, I, I mentioned obviously the, the kind of monopoly style pricing of the pharmaceutical companies, but the health insurance industry kind of operates in, in a similar, almost monopoly style way. And I don't mean that in the sense that there's only one insurance company. Obviously there's, there's, there's several insurance several companies. for each state. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it's not a monopoly maybe in the traditional sense, but if you look at, at how Americans get their health insurance, majority of them get it through their work and you know so based on where you work essentially determines who your health insurance company is so when i say monopoly i mean in the sense that if i work at a job i don't get to pick what insurance i what insurance company i use my work tells me what company i get to choose from and then maybe they give me two or three different policies there but 
I don't get to pick a different company if I want a different company. You know, if, if they pick, if my work picks a plan that has maybe a network that I don't like, I can't really do anything about it because of the way the employer health system is set up and, and there's some, you know, some structural things that are, that are in the laws of the, of the United States that favor employer-sponsored health coverage. Um, so one of the main things, you know, at a minimum that I'd like to see reformed or adjusted, I just, I don't want insurance to be tied to employment. I don't think there's any logical reason. If you look at the history of it, it all started back in World War II era. Um, there were, there were uh, like price ceilings essentially placed uh, for, for wages as World War II was ramping up and the economy was, you know, getting restarted for the kind of military industrial complex. Um, you know, there's a shortage of workers and so wages were rising and they're worried about, you know, that kind of spurring inflation. Um, so they, they issued temporary, uh, like, ceilings on, on what you could pay workers. They, I think they just froze the wages, basically. Um, so then companies, they needed workers still because there was a shortage, so they just kind of found a, a loophole and they started offering better benefits. They said, okay, well, we can't pay you more, but we'll give you this great health insurance if you come work for us. So there was sort of just a way to get around the price controls during the World War II era. And that kind of just stuck around after the war. You know, the, obviously the price controls were, were lifted and that effect still, still stayed around where people kind of associated their work with providing them insurance. And, and now, you know, it, it's, it's even in the tax code. The tax code favors employer-sponsored health coverage um, so without getting too, too bogged down in the details, I'll try to summarize it very briefly. But when companies pay a portion of, of your, as an employee, when they pay a portion of your health insurance premiums, they can write that off as a tax deduction. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's sort of like, basically it's a benefit to you. And if you were to just buy the insurance yourself, if they were to just pay you more, say they spend $1,000 on your insurance plan versus they could give you a $1,000 raise, except it makes more sense via the tax code to just pay your health insurance because they don't have to pay the payroll taxes and you don't have to pay income taxes on it. So there's, there's a tax code, you know, reason why companies do that now. And that just sort of perpetuates the system. So even if they were to spend the same amount, it wouldn't go as far favors that. But again, I don't see any logical reason why that should be the case. I mean, you don't buy your homeowner's insurance through your work. Your work doesn't tell you, you can only use this one company, you know, oh, you have a car, you can only use this one auto insurance company. That's, that's not how we do it in any other insurance market. And there's no logical reason that it would need to be tied to where you work. So I think at, at absolute minimum, I would really, really like to see that changed. Um, I mean, can yeah. you imagine an economy though? Like think about the logic behind it. Is there any, like imagine the double whammy you're getting if unemployment goes up like you did during exactly. COVID. Not only are you unemployed and not only do you have to deal with the, I've become pretty well aware of like, and I need to do a lot more reading on like the social sociology of it all, but like unemployment creates crime. It truly does. And like, whether it's correlation, causation, whatever it does, like it, it has a, it has a, at least a corollary between them. Imagine having an unemployment spike like COVID. And then on top of that, like COVID, where you need health the most, you need insurance the most, or you need coverage the most, and based on your loss of work, mandated by, oh, you can't be that close to your coworkers or customers, 
It's nuts. That's that, that is very, very crazy. And I would say that that is the reason that I'm seeing so much hope for like, is radical change necessitated or is it just a whole bunch of like small, not even small, like just structural changes that need to happen within the existing uh, framework to make it work better. And that's where I'm like, shouldn't radical change be a method of last resort? And maybe I'm not seeing all that. Maybe we haven't talked about all the, all the issues and everything. I will also say, I think you're uh, in, in at least flyover state. I think you lose this argument. I think like, if, and again, I, I want this show to so much, rather than obviously identify with a certain political party, I want this rediscovering liberalism thing. And I think you guys share this belief. I want it to just be like, certainly let's talk about everything, but let's talk about it pragmatically, like in the real sense flyover country doesn't want this they don't want anything like it so that's what i'm curious to know like do you do you see any hope for like more incremental change than just like let's just jump in and you, again you know, I'm, I'm, i i don't know because it seems like i mean because if you look at what obamacare is really it's fairly in the grand scheme of things it's somewhat incremental like it's really not all that radical compared to some of the proposals now mm -hmm. and if you look at some of the responses to that there's a lot of pushback and even to this day there's a lot of pushback so i don't i don't know if that's if you're really going to get very far with that but aren't you enlisting i think you just kind of like if incremental change is pushed back what's radical change going to do like it doesn't get better just because you do more in well, my opinion yeah. i don't think i think that argument falters it depends on how how much control whatever party is trying to push radical change has and that's another well, thing obamacare would shut down our throats like uh, for as bad for as bad as the Republican Party is now, or as bad as we want to, you know, discuss the reasons we don't like them as much or whatever, the Democrats definitely did this in 2010. Again, whether it was the object of Republicans being mean to Obama or whatever the case was, whoever started it on the playground, uh, I would say that Democrats definitely threw a punch when it came to like not inviting Republicans, pushing it through. Even like semi-moderate liberal reporters thought that like Obamacare was like a like what just happened so do you remember that like it was past the middle of the night nancy pelosi's infamous you have to pass it to know what's in its speech like all of those things were not coincidence and i would say that incremental change perhaps is not the object of hate here i think it's regrettably obama but also compounded by the fact that i think it's just a toxic environment and that's where again this is a whole nother conversation uh the one variable every argument is tainted with is uh gridlock for yep. sure and to what degree but Healthcare, that's where I'm, what do you say to that? What would you say to if incremental change was, like, take that exactly what you just said. And I don't disagree with you. Obamacare was pushed back. There's still, like, legal challenges somehow to this day. Even after McCain threw down the thumb, like, I'm voting no on this repeal of Obamacare. Even the, you know what I mean, the skinny yep. repeal, as they called it back yep. in the day. Even after John McCain's long gone, what, like, I, it's still getting attacked. If incremental change is rejected for whatever reasons, I don't know if radical change is going to be like wholly embraced just because. You know what I mean? Like, what, what would you say to that? What are your thoughts? Well, I, I guess I would say, I think maybe people just don't don't trust the system, like the current insurance system. I think there's a lot of like things system, that, like, and even like, like we were just talking about the pharmaceutical companies. Like, we just don't trust that like they have our best interests in mind. Whereas if you like do a wholesale radical change. Like the whole thing's changed. I, I think you might get some people who maybe didn't. I see. So you just got they, like all bad agents. Let's just just start Noah's, from scratch. Noah's through and through. And <laughs> kind of, yeah. Just 
start from scratch and build it the way you want from the ground up instead of, you know, instead of working with yeah. people that, that a lot of people probably justifiably maybe don't trust right now. Okay. Yeah, and that's, I mean, like, I don't know. I, 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 I certainly see <laughs> Medicare for All being more, like, uh, divisive than Obamacare was. And just because I, I also think that, like, you're you're erasing an entire industry too and that's another that's thing definitely true. too and now uh what humans might weep for that industry i don't know but still you are like economic shock is a real thing yeah. and when you when you do that kind of thing it'd probably be the exact same thing as making a tax code oh what simple great days they were when we were like why aren't the tax why isn't the tax code just one page long well if you do that overnight the economic shock would be incalculable like it would be terrible because yeah. you just can't you just can't uproot people like that and it's a lot of people in the healthcare industry another point to add to that uh um we i don't think we've seen a um a medicare for all or a socialized medical system on the scale and the number of people like with over 300 million people uh done before it so it's it definitely um trying to create a system that would work for every state and um just be universally working is, is definitely a huge challenge that um, you, U.S. US uh, kind of uniquely faces. So let me let me ask you this. We'll, we'll see because I, I haven't really found a satisfying answer to it yet. So what value does private insurance add to the healthcare experience? Do, do they add anything useful? Because no. to me, I don't think... Um, um, go ahead. Yeah, to me, and I'll, I'll let you answer in a second. To me, I don't think they really add much, which is, is part of the reason why I'm also, yeah. you know, I, I'm okay getting rid of them because I don't think, I, to me, they're basically a middleman. They collect premiums. They pay out some of it. They keep some in profits, a lot. I mean, billions in profits if you look at a, at a given year. They pay their CEOs a lot of money, right? I mean, they have this, it's this huge infrastructure in the middle, and I just don't really see them adding anything. Yeah. And to kind of point on to that, um, it, I lost my train of thought. Um, come back. Yeah, I, I actually, I'll build off what you said last, Josh. I, Vermont tried this. Like, so and maybe this is a good segue. Maybe Josh's last comment is a great segue into like what, what my point of view would be. I'm ready for a state by state approach. I am ready to, Federal government, I want you to give like, give us a six month time frame that we're basically operating in, where it's uh, six months. You remove your laws. So again, and this is one that I'll kind of describe as much as I know about it. Uh, it's called the Employer Retirement Income Security Act. Uh, something passed in the seventies, eighties. Can't remember what what decade, but largely, it basically, is just the supremacy clause of the health insurance industry. It basically, or of healthcare. It basically means that the employer mandated. Healthcare is a federal mandate. States can't do anything to undermine it and play ball. Well, in that in that game, states can't do anything. They can't test anything. Vermont would have had to have raised income taxes by 11% across the board. Now, that might not sound like a huge increase. What I think, uh, listeners, it's also really good to understand for those, for, for us who don't know, like, you don't, we don't pay a lot in state income taxes, at least up here in North Dakota. We don't pay a huge amount. Minnesota's, it's a little higher. If you were to raise 11% in a, in, on a state income tax, 
it would that would be the definition of economic shock. That's actually what they called it. They came out and said we have to literally this the governor and now Shamlin Shumlin I can't remember his name. He came out. Does anybody know where Bernie Sanders is from? What his home state is? Vermont. When they announced that this system collapsed under its own fiscal weight, Bernie Sanders was in Iowa campaigning under the banner for Medicare for all. Like it seems dishonest. It seems genuinely dishonest. And it seems a bit disingenuous too. It seems like these, like that's where, again, it comes back to this trust factor. I don't trust government to enact a good healthcare system. I don't trust the government to give. And when I'm talking, I'm talking to uncle Sam here. I'm not talking about all the little Samlets. I'm talking about uncle Sam. I the don't big trust fed. him. Not at what? I said the big fed. The, the big fed guy. Yeah. I just, I don't. And, and I think the VA is a great example. I think that like bureaucratic incompetence, not only in the Trump administration is a great example. I don't want to wait to see a nurse for an hour and a half when I'm bleeding out of my neck with my jaw injury that I got. Then that was the Colorado in- incident I was referring to earlier in the show. Like an hour and a half wait time sounds terrible. If you have to wait even a fraction of the time to get a primary care physician, I guarantee you I can get a, pri- a different primary care physician before this week is over in America. And like... Again, maybe it's the incongruence or the incompatibility with the American way of life. Uh, I am ready for a socialized healthcare system. I really am. If it comes to North Dakota, I'd love to have the intellectual conversation about it with other North Dakotans. But yet again, and this is what I think our our listeners are going to catch up with, uh, certainly certainly something that I'm kind of being able to ground myself in again. I do. I think the 10th Amendment is super important here. I think that if California wants to have an uber liberal, we pay everything for everybody at all times for illegal immigrants too system. I, I truly, I think that's a plot of, I think that's a plausible, if that's a word. I think that's great. However, I think if it's working for North Dakotans in their current system, uh, my question to you guys would be, do you guys see any problems? Because again, uh, one stat that I pulled open, 2010 to 2019, 20-some different states have proposed 66 unique laws to like build their own healthcare systems. Why not? Yeah, to, to briefly hit on your, your most recent points, um, that's how it works in, in Canada, at the very least. Each province Provincial. has their own si- system. And and I think if, if the U.S. were to adopt a system, that, that would be the only way it would work. Isn't it, isn't it kind of the best of both worlds, though? Isn't it kind of like we get to try our, like, the laboratories of democracy, which I think was it's something that the founders of America wrote in, in, a, in, I think it was the Federalist Papers or something, talking about how we have 13 different laboratories. They're all going to try, you know, back then there were 13, now we have 50 of them, and they're very different places. Uh, I think for the exact same reason that I don't think like educational rules that work well for Yonkers, New York, as it does for Albuquerque, New Mexico, you know, or Juneau, Alaska. I think that these places are so incredibly different, uh, certainly not least in most in like demographics. That's where I'd see like, can each state, and again, I think I'm all about like the, the whole like George Floyd, like police brutality argument that has shown me more so than more arguments do that like local control is needed now more than ever. And I think that when you have local control, last thing I'll say, please tell me everything, everything that's rumbling through your mind, uh, local control, I think also means local accountability. And I think that's what we're missing a lot of in America. People come out to vote in droves every four years. And we all know what four years that is. It's certainly not midterms. Can you imagine how much people would come out and vote for their state senators and their state reps if it was their healthcare on the line? They're again in, in Vermont, their Green Mountain healthcare, in North Dakota, our Green Plains healthcare, whatever that looks like, truly, I, I or Great Plains healthcare. I think it's, I, I think that it's a admirable idea, and I do think it's like the baby with the bathwater, actually, the wheat and the chaff. I think we got both. 
So it, you're, you're, let me just to clarify, in your like ideal scenario, you would have the federal government like essentially not like, cause there are, like I was describing earlier, there are certain things like in federal law and you talked about some of them as well that, that favor the current, you know, employer-based health coverage. You would say, let's get rid of those completely. Or, or what would you say on the, on the federal level? Cause would well, you let's repeal take, those? Let's take it. I mean, and, and I think we can take it categorical note by note, uh, uh, chime in individually as you will, please. So, what was the first one? Well, we let's just talk about the tax about code. One. The tax, tax code. code. The tax code favors employer-based health coverage versus any other health coverage. Perfect segue. So, uh, there is a law in the federal on the federal books right now called ERISA, and again, that is the Employee or Employer Retirement Income Security Act. It is basically created under the guise of protecting employer-made healthcare, and again, it's it's it largely is. States being unable to do anything and not having any wiggle room is a byproduct. Not it's a it's a bug, not a feature of the law. If that makes sense. Okay. The primary focus of the law, rather, is to make sure that everybody who has like employment gets help. It's some. I don't believe it's for the strict supremacy clause. Federal government rules all. It just when the law is carried out, it just so happens that that's the way it works. It happens that states don't have the fiscal room. You can't basically tell employers in your state hey, we're going to do away with your insurance. We're going to build our own system. They actually have to kind of work to like go to the companies into like giving up their employer-based, employee-based healthcare. They have to like, and that's what Vermont did. That's why Vermont, that's one of the reasons Vermont failed in their attempt was because first and foremost also, I might add, roughly 47 states have balanced budget amendments. It provides such a good fiscal framework for these programs. How much does it cost? That's another thing. How many times have we heard that, like, I get, like, we must have, as America, we must have the best credit limit in the world because our credit card is bumping. Are we just putting all of this on? Like, I heard Andrew Yang on Ezra Klein's podcast recently say, well, the cost of inaction is in the trillions. So if the cost of action is in the trillions but slightly less, what are we talking about? And I think that's a good argument. But you've got to really convince me that, like, right now, most of my family members are relatively content with their health. They would look at me and laugh like, and again, I, I think they'd say it with a great deal of love, but they, they giggle at like the idea of well, nothing, if, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. And again, I, I do think that's short-sighted. I do think it's narrow-minded. Narrow I'll finish with, I also think it's understandable. I think that if you're locked away in North Dakota, if you're locked away in Minnesota, even if you're locked away anywhere in these flyover states and things are going relatively well and you have the coasts that are dealing with whatever, all the more reason I would say to argue against a federal system and for a state-by-state -state system. If it's working in North Dakota, but not New York, guess who needs help? Not North Dakota. So just to clarify, you would you would try to like get rid of that the ERISA and those federal. things. You would, you would essentially say the federal government should not be setting the rules for this, or, or would I'd you say that? I'd be a bit more methodical in it. I, okay. I would say that like at least for ERISA, I'd say ERISA is a good place to start, uh, if that answers your question. Sure. Yeah. Your thoughts? So I guess for me, yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, if you look at the polls, yeah, a lot of people say they like their employer coverage. I guess for me, the thing that I think makes it tricky is so much of the cost of healthcare is not directly seen by individuals. And that's yeah. where it gets tricky. Because if you, if you look and maybe, I mean, you probably can't even see it as a hard part. So your company, if you work and you get in, you get coverage through your employer, they're probably paying somewhere between probably 60 to 80% of your premium, they probably pay every single month, right? And like premiums that individuals pay have definitely risen. They, they are high, don't get me wrong. But 
an even bigger share of that is paid by your employer, but you don't see that because you know it's not on your paycheck. You don't you don't ever see it. So, you know, when when people talk about oh well your taxes go up eleven percent, well that's a lot, right? But if you say if if the alternative would be well those hundreds if not thousands of dollars that your company is paying towards health insurance is actually going to you in the form of a raise because they don't have to pay your health coverage anymore, maybe that 11% looks a little different because if you're getting a, a you know, thousand some, you know, multi-thousand dollar raise because they don't have to pay your health insurance and they pay you instead, you know, it, it's, and that's why I think it, to me, I just like to look at like the big picture. And if you say, look, kind of back to the, the stats I said earlier, if you look at like total healthcare spending, big picture on like a per person average basis, the United States is double Canada and the United Kingdom and a lot of other countries. So to yeah. me, that, that says there's – it's not so much a fiscal problem of, oh, we can't afford it. Like we clearly can afford it because we're paying double already. It's just can we use this money that we're paying in a more efficient way? Because if we're paying double, there's there's no reason that, oh, it's going to be too expensive to do Medicare for all. Well, we're, it's already too expensive to not if you're asking me. Um, so I, I guess that's kind of – kind of my my thoughts there to your point though do you actually think that like i would say that we're talking about this because pharmaceuticals and health insurance companies I, it would be simplistic to say that the only reason is their greed it would be super simplistic to say that i think that's part of it but it'd be simplistic are you telling me that you think that like let's say the company gets back an, an insane amount of money you think any of that is going to the low-level workers that we're talking about without health insurance? Do you think any of that? Like, That's... I refuse to believe, and you need look no further than my friend here to the right, Mr. Josh, that, like, these companies are skeevy. Like, corporate greed is not just a healthcare problem. Corporate greed is all over the place. And you better believe that the bulk majority of the money gained from any healthcare savings is not going to the consumer. It is certainly not going to the low-level employee. It is going to our dear good friends up in the uh, what do we call them? The executive, the executive people. Is that maybe who we might? And, and I'm not saying that. I'm saying it a bit facetiously. I actually say that with a bit of vomit in my mouth. Like truly, I think it's disgusting. I think it's gross, and I think it's like it's the one moment where I'll let myself get emotional. Like, good. So I guess there is that is a valid concern. I think yeah, there there. Th that's a fair well, you, question to raise. What I would say, if if you're worried about that, I think you could definitely structure it in a way. To minimize that, for example, instead of saying it's just going to be like an income tax is going to pay for it, let's just make it a payroll tax paid by the company. You know, say five, eight, ten, whatever percent needs to be. Say the yeah. company is going to pay that kind of. You know, because right now, if you look at your payroll taxes, like Social Security and Medicare, obviously individuals pay some, but the company also chips in some as well. That that's on their end. Mm -hmm. You could do it the similar structure. We say, okay, maybe individuals chip in three, four, five percent payroll tax, and maybe the companies chip in another five, ten percent just on their end. And then, you know, instead of paying into premiums, they're just paying this payroll tax instead. You could structure it in a way to try to like Prevent essentially the essentially taking over. the company's either gonna pay it in a premium to the insurance companies or they're gonna pay maybe the exact same amount but to the government. So what is your biggest argument, and forgive me from just maybe tethering what we're talking about now to what I was talking about earlier. Is your biggest argument against state control just that it's not like big enough? It's not like flashy enough? And I'm not trying to be insulting. Is that is that your biggest? I haven't heard like a, a structural opposition to it. I've just heard the, oh, but maybe the federal one's better for a different, for a reason here or there. 
I think, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to what you're saying. I think there may be some synergies to be gained from going one centralized system if you just, you know, sort of like an economy of scale, right? The bigger it is, you kind of can get some efficiencies if it's instead of having 50 redundant, because that's yeah. kind of part of the problem yeah, I think we have now. a state negotiate with a pharmaceutical versus the U.S. government is Exactly. And like you look now, we have so many insurance companies and they're all trying to negotiate differently. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you just have like one central government, you can, you can streamline it. And so like if you look at, for example, if you look at administrative costs, um, I have a statistic here. It's from the year 2016. Um, so if you look at, say, administrative costs as a percent of total healthcare spending. What is administrative cost? Can you explain um, that? So that'd be like anything from like billing, marketing, you know, all those like not direct medical care, all that kind of extra stuff that goes into all the support so staff. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm Josh, the, the, IT, the IT department at a, at a hospital. Yes. All that kind of stuff would be an administrative cost. So if you look at in the United States of America, the administrative costs as a percent of total healthcare spending is about 8.3%. So for every $100 that you spend on healthcare in total, about $8.3 of it would go towards just administrative. Now, if you look at, for example, the United Kingdom, that number is only about 2%. And if you look at Canada, it's about 2.7. So and they obviously have more, you know, well, more centralized. Well, I guarantee the difference is in IT. I guarantee the difference is in IT. No, I think a lot of it is the billing because you have all the different, because the hospitals need all the billing departments to work with all the different insurance companies. And that's where I think if you just have, because really you can streamline billing. If, if, the, if you have one person paying single payer, that makes billing really easy because you're not billing it to like millions of different people and companies. Yeah. You're billing it to one person. So there are some, some, you know, and if you look at, for example, just to kind of put in perspective back to the U.S. even, if you look at, say, Medicare spending on the administrative stuff, um, they're kind of right around that 2%, somewhere kind of in the 1.5 to 2% range as well um, that, that goes towards administrative, and that's, you know, even in the U.S. here. So I think you could save some amount of money. I, I don't think it'd be insignificant that you could save by just having a, a centralized system. I think that would be a potential benefit of having one centralized system versus 50 separate well um, one negative to my thought i just came up with a net like or while you were talking you kind of like made me think another negative to my system would be it is more than possible it's perhaps more perhaps more than likely that the current insurance companies would become way too expensive to function because you're losing let's say you have 20 states adopt these with and those 20 states you know are going to be the liberal heavily populated Let's say you lose 80 million people off private insurance rolls. What does that justifiably do to insurance prices after that? You know what I mean? Like talk about a market shock. So I'm arguing if you let all 50 states choose their own program, let's say you have 20 states enroll. I'm basically arguing against my point here. I'm trying to like, I'm trying to basically facilitate all of my thoughts here where it's, if you have 20 states enroll in a program where it's, okay, now we're all single payer and the other 30 states are now, are still some mix of, of whatever in that world let you definitely have to provide time for insurance companies to like get back on their feet because they would lose massive amount almost government mandated you'd lose a whole bunch or people like blue cross blue shield might have to completely reorganize because they've lost branches of gut or you know, whatever that looks like well yeah. however that so i do think structurally there would be maybe some issues with it but again i just like 
I really like the idea of, first and foremost, I like the idea of it happening inside of a framework of balanced budgets. Not for the reason of being like a, a deficit hawk. I don't care necessarily as much about that, but I will say it is important. There's no way you can rack up the debt or deficit to infinity and beyond and be okay. I don't, there doesn't seem, that doesn't seem okay. If, if that's the case, I don't understand why every country doesn't do it. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, inflation's got to happen. Something's got to give. If that's not the case, is it heaven on earth? Are we done? Like, money's free? Because, seriously, like, it happening, that's a big... Are, are you asking question. about modern monetary theory? Are you, are you trying to get No, that? we we'll, don't have time we'll for that. We'll save that for <laughs> but a different... Another... Uh, don't worry, we'll, we'll get to that. My, my main thing is, I think it's good to have it, like, we don't hear costs. Democrats never talk about the cost. No. And I'm not talking about... I also, I will say that I'm not owed the same amount of skepticism like Rand Paul might be, right? Like, I'm not a politician. I'm making a, a statement that I think that it's, I think that it, it, it only makes sense to need some form of reality when it comes to what do these things cost? Yeah. Because if that's not the case, why aren't we spending everything and why am I not, why is everything not free? Yeah, why like, am I still at work? Why not make the, double the, the deficit and give everybody free? Uh, we'll double the deficit and raise the minimum wage to $30 an hour. Exactly. Like exactly what they want Might for well Amazon. I'm saying a, your, your dreams quickly become not reality, but you, you, too. exactly. Yeah. You, you, you carve out a very like weird dystopian attempt at utopia and it doesn't work. It's never worked, and I, I, I would, I would posit it will not work. Uh, I'm not saying socialized medicine doesn't work. That's not the point I'm making. All I'm saying is that I, I, I just, I do not, I refuse to believe. I think first and foremost that like government is uh, not refuse. I could be goaded into it. I don't think government's capable of executing it well on a big scale. Again, I think how many veterans do we have in the VA system right now? Yeah. It's a terrible system. Well, I think it's underfunded. I think that's what it comes down to. It's, that's probably you're not. Thing, yeah. I think, okay, yes, I agree. For it to work, there would need to be a commitment to fund it adequately. You can't just put on the back burner and say, But who pays for We're going to Can I ask, what's, what's your financing idea? Is it truly just like you're just running deficits all day? No, I don't think you even need to because, like I said before, I don't think the financing is a problem. We already spend double what other countries pay. But those there's, there's in, not that's a, not in tax dollars. That's not No, in, but it's in premium. So what's the difference? If I have to pay... Well, GDP uh, pay, is different than government if expenditure. I have to pay, no, I know. If I have to pay $500 a month in premiums, or if my taxes go up $500, it does, it's a wash. It doesn't affect... like Either way, it's the same net disposable income. Well, that's not, what I'm saying. Not necessarily, your because tax, in one system, you're paying for... If, and please, tell me what you think about this. Please forgive my interruption. $500 to the government system, you're getting a different result. You're definitely getting a different result. We've, we've actually... Josh talked about a couple of the different results you're getting. Of course, his were overtly negative. Uh, or critical yeah, just highlighting system. certain negative points. Yep, that of course. There definitely is uh, certain positives. I mean, like, absolutely. Like, who does care? Like, they can go into these clinics. They may have to wait a while, but they're not paying for it. There's no the co pays and stuff. Yeah. But once again, yeah. I, I I think my argument more rests in sure you're losing five hundred dollars out of your pocket. If I pay five hundred dollars for like fixing broken windows in my, or if I pay five hundred dollars for a really sweet TV upgrade, I'm definitely getting a different like social value for my money. Does that make sense? So what I'm telling you is, I would argue that the the social value, if you will, of paying that $500 to Uncle Sam, my, my sure, I certainly can whine and moan and complain all day at the private insurance companies that they're price gouging or whatever, but at the very, very minimum, I've got alternatives. Like, no healthcare is an alternative. What is the penalty if you don't but have it, healthcare? <laughs> 
Go ahead. Is it though? Is no is it an alternative? Because at the end of the day, it's for, almost for like young people, it's almost like a so. it's almost like yeah. But the current system we have, it's almost like a baked in bailout because like as a society, we've decided we're not just going to let people die on the streets because they can't afford it. So if you don't have health insurance, yeah, maybe you don't pay. But if something happens, like they're not just going to leave you on the streets to die. So then someone's picking up the tab either way, sort of is what it comes back to. So that's what I mean. Like I think health is one of those things that as a, as a society, we, we prioritize that. We think it's important that no matter whether you can afford it or not, like you should be treated in at least like a, a minimally acceptable way. Um, so I, I don't know, I guess. I, I think to, I think to wrap up on the, on the subject and I, and I, I certainly do think that, uh, we have more, um, to talk about. So give us, give everybody, I think we should go around, just kind of tell us your, uh, wrap up your thoughts. I will start and, and I, whoever can end, but I will, I will end my part of this conversation just saying that I'm so open to exploring these ideas. I think what we should do for the next one is we should come prepared with some questions or something like that. Like areas that we can maybe talk about and we should just like i think we should i think we should dive deep into and again i'm not talking perhaps about the next episode number three but in one of these future episodes maybe a part two of this conversation where it is it is sincerely geared towards let's figure out prescription drug costs let's figure out you know what i mean maybe just yeah. dive into one go over some category. policy and how how can we structure this this a system that would work exactly and yeah. i'm going to end by saying uh i hope all the listeners know i hope Jacob, Josh, you guys know my mind is totally open on this one. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the state approach. I think I have a little bit more to talk about the next episode about like, or whenever we talk about it next, about like how I think my the system that I, I'm envisioning would be structured. Um, I'm certainly encouraged by like the conversation on healthcare. I think that it's good to have the conversation, especially revolving around, um, I do, I think that it's going to take a national conversation around where we place value, like where we, uh, it's going to come to a head rugged individualism versus collectivism. And that actually is like a huge underpinned conversation. Yeah, that's, that's a huge part it of it. Like, like you were saying with, um, in the flyover states, like most people are, are very independent and, and have like that. We social distance for a living COVID. Uh, that's the COVID quote. That being said, I really do think that there is, um, I really do think that there's hope for a better system than the one we have. I think that I am more intrigued. I'll place more stock right at this very moment. And again, I'm totally looking forward to changing my opinion, evolving it as we go. I place more stock right now, I think, perhaps in those small, let's not call them incremental for the, for the sake of being pejorative. Let's call them small, but hopefully meaningful, uh, like reforms where we see downstream effects. Because I think right now we're talking about all those, like where we sit downstream and I think maybe what, what my argument has done is ignore how many things upstream got us to where we are. And that's where uh, the future conversation excites me. I will pass it off to the next. Josh wants to take it up next. Sure. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I definitely um, would find myself pretty open to different uh, solutions. I, I don't really have like a, I want to see it this way um, type of approach that I've seen um, laid out. Um, but I, w I would kind of be interested in a system that could potentially be in a sense, like a hybrid between um, a federal and state program where you, you could have the Fed um, take charge of controlling things like negotiating prices for drugs and like kind of just setting a template for different prices for like um, different operations and, and different uh, 
cases. Um, and then leave it to the states where they, they kind of set, maybe run the taxes um, that pay for it. And then also um, take care of uh, like paying the providers and, and all of that. Like, because when you look at like states like California where they're, they're huge populations, um, it, it would uh, almost be uh, really confusing trying to work out funds for each state on a federal level where if you had each state kind of produce their funds for their uh, each of their programs. And I think uh, along those lines, uh, when we see have states that are um, have a lot of people on the borders, like the, there probably have to be some sort of like reciprocity almost um, where you have states that kind of work with each other since they're bordering um, with different uh, medical systems. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of what I'd be interested in seeing, but definitely awesome. open to um, a lot of different ideas. Well, I guess I'll, I'll just close by saying I I think that there there are to your point, Austin, I think there are solutions that are smaller that would be beneficial. I agree there are things that could be done. I would be open to, to trying those. Um, I think that if there's one thing that I could really, a, a more incremental change that I could really want to see that I think would make the biggest difference, I would just say untether health insurance from employment. That's, to me, that's one of the biggest things you could do to, to benefit the overall competitiveness of the insurance industry. And I think that would go a long way. Um, but I, I do think the best way would just to be go, you know, full on single payer. Um, I, I do think that there's no lack of, of funding for it. If you look at how much we spend now, I do think there's, there's room to just, instead of paying it to private companies, let's pay it to the government. Again, I, to my point earlier, I don't see any value that the private insurance companies add. So to me, if they're there just sucking out profit, I don't really get the point of them. I mean, if, if there's no other useful thing they can do, I I have no problem getting rid of them. I think it's I, rent seeking. It is. We learned about yes, that. Actually. Economic yeah, rents. Yeah, yes. The old economics. Rent seeking. That's that's what I would call it. Um, and you know, if if the path to get there is you know, there's different proposals like the uh, you know, like Medicare for all who want it or whatever, with with a public option kind of buying. Medicare it. X, I think they're calling. Some, yeah, some there's options. there's different like variations of it. Um, but even a system where you could like buy into it, I think would be a step in the right direction. Again, that all is, is predicated on untying health insurance from employment. To me, that would be, to me, that's step one. No matter where you're going to go after that, step one is untying it there. That would be probably the, the first thing that really needs to happen. I think on that note, I think we find ourselves all in agreement, like untethering. And I, yeah, I would also would say that I find myself big first step. And maybe that's the answer. Is it? and I don't mean to reopen the conversation, is that if you untether it from employer, is it employer-based or is it government-based? Is there really no other, like, in your mind? Give well, me a you simple, have, quick I answer mean, as you can. Yeah, you could do it. If you really wanted to, you could structure like any other insurance, right? I can go and I can buy homeowner's insurance from whoever I want. Like, but there's, a, there's the a whole list of, I just, I don't, like, I can shop around. I can go to But there are all differences between, there are differences between That's healthcare what, and, and home. Insurance companies, uh, for but insurance is insurance to some be. extent. But like we're operating differently. We're like if you don't have car insurance, oh well, your car is dead, or you know what I mean. But but if you don't have health insurance, there's 
I'm saying there's a different end game. The games aren't the game is not the same when it when it's stretched to the extreme. And that's where I'm again, you like, want you want everyone to have some sort of coverage because you never exactly. know when you'll get sick. Everyone because we want yes, we don't want people to be dying because they can't afford health coverage. Yes, I agree in that sense. So I think on that note, I think we find ourselves all in agreement that like untethering uh, employer sponsored health plans. Uh, or I'm so sorry, the employer sponsored aspect of it from your health plan. Uh, and again, I think the conversation we've had tonight is really like gone in that direction. I don't think any of us are really for that. I am super excited to continue the conversation. Um, I think if there's no objection, I listed off a couple other topics. I think libertarianism, uh, is looking us down the face, uh, perhaps for the next episode. Um, we are going to go ahead and sign off, uh, again, for episode two of rediscovering liberalism. Um, the topics we've talked about today have been phenomenal. We've had great conversation, again, covering both healthcare and then talking a little bit about John Bolton's book, um, The Room Where It Happened. Uh, the next episode hopefully will be released sometime uh, next week or the week after, sometime in the, uh, the latter part of September. We'll have episode number three out uh, and hope to maybe have a guest on uh, in the coming episodes. Uh, we don't have any like projected time for that, but uh, anything else, gentlemen? Anything else we want to say? Just like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Your yeah, you listenership. Yeah, you can catch us on. Forgive me. So this is the first time us doing this. Uh, you can catch us on. As of right now, it is Spotify and TuneIn.com. Uh, you can of course uh, check us out. Google us. Um, we should hopefully also have a website. We'll keep you up to date on that as we go. Uh, and then of course um, check out the. Let's see. I think we already covered it. Spotify, TuneIn. Oh, and then Apple. Apple will be listed. Uh, hopefully we have a projected date for when this uh, episode actually airs. It'll be tomorrow, Wednesday, September 16th. Uh, so check us out on all three. Thanks for listening very much. Catch you later.